Ria and welcome to this podcast. As you know, marketing is an ever-evolving industry. With that in mind, I've started this podcast so we can talk about new and creative ways of running marketing channels as well as forming strategies. Be it branding, digital ads, influencers, social media, SEO and lots more. Consider this like a friendly chat with a colleague where you learn from each other's experiences and insights. So, let's explore together what's next in marketing. We have a very special guest with us. He is currently the managing director at Denso Singapore. Before this, he was also one of the founding members of The Happy Marketer where he spent a decade building the business up to one of the best digital marketing firms in India. Outside of work, he loves cricket and loves parenting his 3-year-old adorable toddler. So, please welcome Prantik Mazumdar. Thank you so much Ria. It's so exciting to be uh uh, you know, on this podcast, I've seen the last few episodes. It's amazing what you're doing. Uh, you know, I think to spread the importance of marketing in our world, not just in the corporate world, but also, you know, I think there's so much of good and that a power of marketing can bring to the industry and society at large. So very enterprising to see, uh, you know, someone like you, uh, you know, do this. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. That's very encouraging to hear. And I definitely feel the same. Like marketing is not limited to just the marketing industry, but like countries are run by people who are very good marketers. Uh, we'll move on to the, to the billion dollar question. So what do you think is next in marketing? A lot of marketers tend to focus on, the, on, on just the creative side, on just the art. And I think when you ask me what is the uh, next in marketing, I think the top line message is, I think we need to infuse a lot more data and science to the art of marketing. And I must qualify as a digital practitioner that creativity is all the more important today. In, in today's world where you know, marketing is democratized thanks to technology and digital, creativity is in fact even more important. Mm-hmm. But so I talk about three things as to what I genuinely believe is the next element as to what will make marketing uh, you know, a success. So at the core, the headline is that as marketers, as marketing professionals, we need to elevate the conversation of marketing in the boardroom, one that is perceived to be a cost center to one that is actually driving growth. So we need to prove to the CEO and the CFO and the board that, hey, look, you can't just afford to chop off marketing. Uh, you know, every time there's a crisis or even otherwise, because marketing is a lever, is an in- interesting and an important lever that can help you drive growth. And by growth, I mean revenue and profit. And I think there are companies that have proven that you can do that. And I hope, uh, you know, the same tools and techniques can be used by more marketers. So that's the headline message as to what's next in marketing, that hopefully we go from cost center to a driver and a lever of growth. And to do that, there are, uh, you know, three things that are quite important to us, uh, you know, as a marketing community and something uh, we talk to our customers as Happy Marketer and Merkel and Densu today is mm-hmm. number one, I think we need to figure out how do we use, collect and use more first party data to make our creatives, our messaging and our media, media buying more mm-hmm. personalized. So the goal is to drive more personalization, but the means to that end is to be able to collect and use first-party data. And for the audience who may or may not be familiar with first-party data, it's again 
I think one of the things in our industry which needs to change is a usage of buzzwords. I mean, first-party data is nothing but essentially, you know, email IDs, mobile numbers, along with, uh, you know, your first and last names, collected in a in a legal manner. I think I must stress that uh, because with the advent of CCPA and the US GDPR, potentially India coming up with its new data protection laws, I think we also need to be very sincere that we need to be collecting first-party information about our customers and prospects in a legal-friendly manner with mm -hmm. permission to be able to reach out to them through their uh, preferred channels. And once we have that first-party data uh, and preferential data, I think that's where marketers who are in the field of creatives and you know, in the fields of media planning, it's a chance for them to come together, use and harness that data to ensure that you know, if they're selling a, a same product to you and me, if we are the target audience, the way they the way they reach out to you and the message that they use to convince you to buy should be personalized and different from the message and the channel that they use to uh, convince me. So the product could be uh, you know, a fan or a laptop, but your use case is likely to be very different uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to mine. So I think that's the first bucket is how do we drive more personalization in our brand storytelling using first party data. The next is again connected uh, is how do marketers become better storytellers through better measurement, attribution, and uh, visualization. Uh, and I think all these three elements of measurement, attribution, of, and data visualization are connected and they can help a marketer become a better storyteller. And what do I mean by this, right? So I'll give you a classic case of point, right? Classic example, we work with a large bank and a large insurance brand uh, you know, in the region. And for the longest time, they did not know what does success mean. So they've been spending millions of dollars on ads, on messages, on campaigns, and they didn't know. How do I define what is success? Are we measuring clicks? Are we measuring impressions? Or uh, can we at all measure revenue? And then when we came in and helped them define what success is, and then put in certain tools and systems in place, today, A, we are able to measure the efficacy of each channel, whether it's digital or offline. B, we're able to also do multi-touch attribution. And that's a game changer. Uh, for the longest time, a lot of marketers have fallen prey to the principles of last click attribution, where they focus on, for example, oh, someone clicked on this Facebook ad and came to my website and signed up for this credit card. So all the credit goes to the Facebook ad. And suddenly you've forgotten the content marketing, the SEO, or the ads that you ran at the airport. But with uh, you know, machine learning based multi-touch attribution models uh, and these technologies, they have existed for a while. The models have existed. It's a question of putting mind to matter and implementing those. And so our goal as consultants or marketers is allow us to use these platforms and models to let the technology give some weighted scores to the different channels in the customer journey. And when we, have, when we did this for the bank and the insurance brand, we realized that, wow, uh, contrary to what we had thought, STO had a huge impact. Or even the brand campaign where the ads were run on billboards and bus stops, they had a great impact right at the top of the funnel. So suddenly what happens is not only are you able to measure that, hey, when I spent $100 on AdWords and $100 on SEO, you know, what was the return? Also, where is the attribution of success and failure? Because this is going to help you do your zero-based budgeting next year. So that your next year's budget is not a function of gut feeling or a planner's uh, you know, planners gut feeling what he or she has read, but actually based on attribution data. 
So measurement, attribution, and the third is the magical uh, tool of data visualization, which I really think can help marketing. And if I connect it to the initial goal of helping marketers elevate the conversation in the boardroom, mm -hmm. I have personally seen a lot of successful marketers in the FMCG world, in the banking insurance world, use data visualization tools like Tableau, Datorama, Google Data Studio, so on and so forth, to use real-time dashboards, use them in the boardroom to tell better stories. And I can give you an example. One of uh, large FMCG companies, one of the first things the marketers, the CMO did was, she installed a very large six-screen television in the CEO's office. Mm -hmm. Why? Because by planting those dashboards in front of the CEO, she did two things. She won his trust because she said, hey, look, I'm not gonna, you don't have to wait for PowerPoint and Excel sheet reports from me. You can see live dashboards in front of you. Mm -hmm. So you certainly build trust and credibility. Number two, she said the biggest magic was not the numbers and the fancy graphs, but the fact that every board meeting thereafter began with the numbers. And we could all, we all looked at the same numbers and the same facts, and then we debated, right? Mm -hmm. So it kind of helped bring everyone on the same page. And that was one way uh, this particular CMO from this very large FMCG company that we serve, she could elevate her position as a marketer and also the team, the marketing team that, wow, that they are driving real-time conversations based on facts and numbers, which are, you know, which are beautifully visualized. So the second point is, hopefully we marketers can elevate the conversation in the boardroom through better measurement, fact-checking, attribution, and better storytelling through data visualization. And the third it's probably a bit futuristic, but I think it's important to keep a look out for, you know, what's, uh, what's in it, as you said, right? What's next. And I must say next is such a relative term because next is always relative to where we are today. So yeah. the point one of first party data for personalization, I think uh, a lot of FMCG companies, a lot of telcos and banks today, they are kind of beginning to get on that journey. The element of measurement attribution, I think again, uh, is, I would say, step number two. Once you have solved for problem one, step number two, that's next level of maturity. The third, like I said, is a bit more uh, futuristic, uh, but a lot more digital native companies are already doing this. And by digital natives, I mean the fintechs, the ride-hailing companies, uh, the grabs and the Ubers of the world, Ola's, Zomato's, so and so forth, where they are using cloud-based technology to be able to do predictive analytics. And this is a massive game changer for us marketers. And I'll give you a few real case studies that we are working on where typically analytics has been about a rear view mirror where you look back in hindsight and based on hindsight, you plan the future. But with uh, cloud-based machine learning based algorithms today, for example, we are helping a telecom operator uh, on a few use cases like predicting churn. So if you have 100 customers, the machine can tell you that, hey, these five customers are very likely to leave you in the next 120 days. So you have a choice, either fine, let them leave, I, I, you know, I care less, or you connect your predictive analytics systems with your media buying platforms so that media planners and the creative guys can create promos and offers to show some extra love to these people who are likely to leave my business and win them back. Right. The next is you can have another audience basket where to say, hey, these 20 people are my brand champions. What can you do? A, stop wasting your promotions on them. Because if they're your champions, why waste money on them anyway? They're going to buy from you anyway. So you save money, 
but maybe you can use better messaging and you can use money to basically say hey would you like to be my influencer would you like to be my advocate or maybe i want to enroll you on a vip program right mm-hmm. so you can use the same money either save it or use the same money to show love and respect and uh, you know uh, appreciation for your champion customers in a different way but all of this is powered by predictive analytics where not only is it able to segment my audiences into different buckets but it's able to predict their behavior based on maybe hundreds of parameters that they are studying for example for a ride hailing company we used predictive modeling to help the ride hailing company predict which of its lakhs of drivers are likely to have an insurance uh, likely to have an accident in the near future and hence mm-hmm. please buy insurance for your those set of drivers so not only are you taking care for the drivers you're also it's a good business practice because obviously you don't want your cars to you know get into an accident because it's bad pr it's not safe etc etc so the use cases that you can solve for with prediction is massive and it goes slightly beyond the realm of marketing and that is also something i would like to conclude you know this segment is it is important for marketers to not just elevate the conversation but also expand the scope of their role the two summary messages from my side in terms of what's next is a use those three points to elevate the conversation of marketing in the boardroom to drive better efficiency and effectiveness by becoming and by using data first party data to drive personalization by using measurement attribution and visualization to tell better stories and lastly to use predictive capability on the cloud to hopefully solve for problems which are uh greater and more impactful than traditional marketing solves for right so yeah that's uh i guess i uh, covered a lot but i guess that's essentially you know uh, the elevation and the expansion of the two core themes uh that we are seeing in the market here and that's what we're advising our clients about right thank you so much i think that was an explosion of ideas and um, yes i i can see the you know data backed approach and analytics to all of the points that you're saying it kind of stems from that mentality and uh, it denso also stands you know that's one of the core values of denso so i can totally see that but so the going back to the first point that you talked about right um driving creativity through data and analytics i think that's a very interesting one because right now currently we're at that stage where machine learning can drive you know sort of analytics and like um like prediction and things like that but creativity is something that's not you can't get it from a machine you can't expect at this point at least we're not so advanced that we can expect a machine to maybe you know draw a painting that will evoke emotions so how how do you think this creativity how would data help in this creative aspect could you elaborate a little bit more there yeah very good point in fact you know one of my uh, uh, denso colleagues uh, who works in dx till adrian he recently wrote a brilliant piece on uh, you know creativity of the rise and importance of creativity in today's digital world and i think what he spoke about was i think for the foreseeable future the human mind is magical and i think the big ideas uh, that kind of synergize the big core ideas of a brand uh, with a creative message i think the big campaign ideas they are likely to still come from humans i think where we will see uh, both incremental as well as quantum jumps in terms of efficiency is for example i'll give you a couple of examples i think one is uh, you can use machine learning and technology to do ad sequencing 
So assuming yeah. I have a big camping idea for airlines, uh, today what you would see is, you know, if uh, when a campaign goes on flight, the same message, the same banner follows me for the next two months without accounting for creative fatigue. And it's not telling me a story. It's still giving me that offer that, hey, Bombay to Goa, Indigo, whatever, this price or this offer, right? Mm -hmm. Or even if it's a branded message, it's the same imagery. What we are seeing and we are doing this live for a particular airline brand is, you know, once we realize that, okay, you know what? My target audience is Rhea. And once I better understand what Rhea's profile or preference is. And again, this is demography is just one small little uh, way to do that. There is psychography. There is your contextual behavior online. We can, A, step number one is, can we make a creative persona of you? Who are you really? What is it that matters to you? Once we know that, then we figure out the story to tell you. Maybe the story to tell you is about a backpacking trip, right? So the same Bombay to Goa message for you is backpacking trip. But for me, maybe it's a, maybe it's a corporate, uh, a corporate trip that I want to plan for my happy tribe uh, in Happy Marketer, right? So mm -hmm. the, it's still the Bombay to Goa flight, but the messaging is very different, and the creative sequencing. So what we have done very well using certain digital tools is. We have sequenced the message. So for Ria, if it's a backpacking, maybe the first one is about backpacking, just the idea of backpacking. The second one is about the challenges of backpacking. The third one is about maybe three things you must carry. So it's engaging you with a story, but in a sequence. So even if the ads are following you, hopefully over a two month period, it's telling you a narrative and a story. And likewise for the corporate message, there's a story. So creative sequencing is a big part where machine learning and technology can help. Mm -hmm. bring that creative uh, message, the core creative idea to life. The other is, of course, uh, I think the fancy word that we keep hearing about in the industry, dynamic creative optimization. I think you've done well. There's a lot of merit there where the creatives are literally created on the fly. So the core message uh, is, again, agreed upon. But, you know, where should the logo appear? Where should, what color should it be? What should the size of the banner be? Uh, should it be a six second tall video or should it be an Instagram Insta story? I think a lot of those can be decided by machines on the fly as long as the components are decided. So I think those are two realistic use cases where uh, technology can be really leveraged. So the idea comes from humans, but technology is helping you drive efficiency and help you tell that story better to the digital audience. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So basically, we still need people out there to be creative, you know, to come up with the actual video or images. It's we are using data as a supplement to make that more efficient and personalized in a way. So that's sort of uh, just summing up your point. Right. Um, yeah. One other topic that you talked about, which I which was pretty new for me with uh, the concept of zero uh, budgeting, right? Or principle based budgeting, as you called it. Um, I think you mentioned that, the, you know, there are three ways that people come to when they're making a plan. One is like driven by gut. Uh, the other one is driven by past performances. And the third one being attribution, which is one of the topics you're passionate about. Can you walk me through what does a zero uh, budgeting, you know, plan look like? And how would somebody start who's probably not aware of these concepts, you know? Yeah, no, it's a good one. So, you know, if you look at, typically, if you look at how do people, you know, a lot of clients come to us saying, hey, how much should I spend on marketing? It's a very interesting and a difficult question. Uh, so one way that people do it is to say, hey, you know what, let's look at industry benchmarks. So they would typically look at data from research firms, from Google, Facebook, and say, hey, how much do companies in my industry spend? 
So maybe you get an absolute number that, hey, uh, companies of your size in your industry, in your market spend $1 million. The other way is to say a lot of people decide based on their revenue, uh, right? To say, okay, you know what? I'm going to spend uh, 5 to 10% of my, uh, of my top line revenue on marketing and maybe 50% of that will be spent on digital, right? That's one. A lot of the younger startups, uh, instead of revenue, because they may not have revenue yet, they probably decide that, okay, if I've raised $100 million of funding, you know what? In the next five years, I'm going to use 20% of that on sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. So you have to, there is some sort of a, when you're starting off, there's some sort of a percentage base and it's percentage of either revenue or funding or, you know, some benchmarking data. But now let's, that's, that's a, that's a starting point. But now let's say you've been running. So right, uh, uh, let's again, I'm going back to my banking and insurance client. They've been running campaigns and their typical way of deciding on, uh, you know, how much I should I spend next year and where should I spend is based on, unfortunately, not much on logic, uh, but a lot on gut feeling, a lot on what uh, the media planner from the agency side might just, you know, use his or her research, secondary research and gut feeling uh, and put it in an Excel sheet saying, hey, you know what, I think you should spend 20% on SEO, 30% on media. And sometimes you don't know, maybe the agencies have, uh, you know, biases or maybe they have certain deals already cut out and, mm -hmm. you know, hence there's a bit of bias. Uh, the zero-based budgeting principle says fundamentally that every year when you're starting, you're literally starting from zero, which means you're not looking at your past performance necessarily, right? So let's say last year you spent a million dollars on marketing. That does not, most organizations will say, okay, last year we spent a million, our company grew by 20%. So maybe 10%, let's increase our marketing. So, okay, we're going to spend 1.1 million. But zero-based budgeting says not really. You don't have to do that. It has to be objective based. Let's think for this year, what's our sales ambition? What's our revenue growth? What does the macro environment look like? Maybe it's COVID or maybe there is a massive opportunity. So based on objective of what do I really want to achieve? Let's work backwards and then decide our marketing budget, which could be 500,000 compared to last year's million or which could be 5 million. Because mm -hmm. the whole goal is, you know, let's not add incremental marketing spends. Let's not make last year spends the baseline, but let's rather think of the business objective. So to me, uh, that has always worked better because, you know, I am not basing it on history because again, as they say, right. And uh, I think the funny example of insurance ad that past performance is not a good predictor of uh, future performance. So same way, I think marketing spends, spends need not be a function of last year's spends. It has to be a function of what do I want to achieve this year? And there, when you're looking, I think attribution can support you. Data-driven attribution can at least tell you that, hey, sure, last year you spent a million. Based on this year's objective, you want to spend two million. That's cool. But where should you break that total budget into what buckets? I think attribution has a role to play there. Because there you can use data-driven attribution to say, you know what, you thought display ads, you were spending 40% of your total one million on display ads. But attribution says that, you know what, it didn't really work that well. I think you should cut it down to 20%. Mm -hmm. So from this year's 2 million, you'll probably only spend 20 on display. So attribution, zero-based will help you uh, get, a, get to a good starting point based on your business objective. I think attribution can help you uh, decide on the budget allocation into which buckets should you spend on based on uh, historical data-driven analysis of uh, what worked and what didn't work. 
right okay i got it so it's basically instead of using your historic performance as a starting point for your budgets you rather use you know the goals that you have for the business and use the historic data for your each channel split or you know how are you going to distribute cost and uh, efficiency over there makes sense makes a lot of sense all right so i think a lot of our talks are revolving around you know how marketing is sort of changing even as a department and your ideas of how the role should sort of expand and what a cmo should do and the marketing department should look like i'm very interested to know uh, what do you think is the new age like requirements for somebody to be a successful marketer like you said right before it was more about communication and uh, probably nitty gritties of marketing uh, campaigns whether they know how to use a tool or something of that sort what do you think should be the new um, new qualities maybe analytics you know uh maybe how to drive creativity through data visualization so what do you think are requirements and what are some things that new marketers can certainly work on to be successful in this industry yeah so you know i so i have, i I, uh, i have this philosophy that you know for not just marketers but in general for us folks in our careers as professionals uh you know there's a concept called polymath uh in fact there's a book uh, that i would uh, definitely recommend to the audience to read is one is range and one is polymath both talk about the emergence of generalists mm-hmm. i think uh, you know previously you know maybe in our parents i think there was if you look at most fields they would talk about going deep and specializing but now a lot of history and research is showing that there is a lot of value uh for humans to be generalists because machines will and are likely to get better at being specialists Mm-hmm. so you know a machine over the next 20 years a machine is way more likely to be way more accurate when it comes to analytics etc so the actual number crunching the analysis or even the data visualization of it and like you said maybe in 20 years they could take the visualization and make it into a brilliant video as well uh, so i think machines will get great at in depth elements i think where humans are great uh, and these concepts talk about is two things one is humans are great at the antithesis of analysis which is uh, synergizing so it's about connecting the dots so mm-hmm. instead of analyzing and breaking down it's synthesizing that's the word i was looking for is how do you connect dots and synthesize to tell a better story or how do you synthesize and look at patterns and figure out a course of action mm-hmm. so i think it is very very critical i feel in today's fast moving world that all of us come with a mixed bag of skills which make us very good generalists or good mm-hmm. polymaths where you know we can do a, you know it's 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 funny it's literally the reversal of jack of all trades right uh, master of none in fact i'm literally proposing that there is a lot of value in being a jack of all trades as long as you're able to connect those different trades and synthesize a story and figure out the next steps uh so if i bring it to marketing i think the skills that i would really focus on one is uh you know uh, one is having uh, you know being able to empathize with customers and audiences trying to understand who the audience is what is it uh, that they want what is it that they don't want i think machines are still not great at doing that because you still need some emotion and empathy to do that so that empathy uh, and i think a lot of school curriculums i see in international schools at least they're driving towards trying to develop that skill of empathy it's a soft skill right you mm-hmm. can't learn it through textbooks Uh, so i think that skill of empathy driven research i think is an important one uh, the other one is being able to read 
interpret analysis and to be able to synthesize and tell a better story. So I'm not really proposing that we get better at number crunching in Excel or do visualization. I think we've already seen machines are far better than us. But how do I take that and tell a narrative depending on who the audience is? Mm-hmm. How do I modulate my voice? How do I you know, figure out my body language? Again, a lot of soft skills, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to tell stories. The third that I would say is uh, a field that is fairly nascent, but I'm seeing some a lot of marketers leverage this field, which is a field called behavioral economics. Yeah. In fact, uh, Ogilvy recently did a day-long, 24-hour-long event uh, in the UK, which was broadcasted live around, it's called, I think the event was called Nutstock. Yeah. yeah. It was fantastic to see that you know, marketers finally openly talk about how important, important uh, behavioral economics is. And I've become a big fan of this because I think this fundamentally shifts uh, the logic of uh, economics where traditional economic economics believe that humans are rational, but behavioral economics believes just the opposite that we humans are anything but rational, but we make irrational choices, but we like to justify our choices yeah. rationally after we purchase or after we make those choices. So I think behavioral economics using nudges, using those techniques, I, th- I think I would definitely recommend the marketers of the future. So if I summarize behavioral economics, being able to synthesize and tell better stories. And of course, to begin with, to be able to empathize with human beings to understand what their needs are. I think those are three things. And you see, if you see the pattern there, these are softer skills, more generalist skills, probably yeah. not, you know, one that one can, you know, skills that one can learn and pick up from school of arts and social sciences, uh, you know, literature, language, as opposed to technical skills, because I genuinely believe, of course, if one wants to go into R&D product development, by all means, going into computer engineering and industrial design, etc. is great. But I think, uh, you know, to be better marketers in the next 20, 30 years, the design thinking process, the storytelling, the behavioral economics process, uh, and being able to kind of synthesize, I would probably put my money there. Yeah, those are really good points, especially, um, I think a a lot of marketers have started realizing that empathizing with their audiences and their consumers is super, super important. And now I can see a lot more marketers indulge in, you know, doing surveys and finding out about their core customers, like, you know, like you were saying about first party data. Uh, But I love the third point about behavioral economics, because I think as marketers, people think you know economics is a completely different subject and there's nothing that it has to do with marketing whereas economics has everything to do with marketing because economics is like a large scale um, you know theories based on individual behaviors and uh, I was there in that uh, festival as well Nutstock I was so happy it was free and I could attend it and that was honestly one of the most enriching experiences I've had compared to all of my paid sessions that I've done over the course of COVID. Like, because even some simple concepts over there, right, about how you, like you said, we are irrational consumers. And every time I think when we're designing marketing campaigns, we, we take that assumption that, you know, whatever the consumer is saying is what they mean. That's exactly how they behave. And this is exactly how it's going to be, whereas it's never the case. So it's really nice to have sort of that research 
then still talk to your consumers and know sort of the drawbacks of you know maybe they're saying this it might not be exactly how they're saying it and uh, then sort of pull it together with a narrative uh, is sort of the message that i got from uh, you know what you just said uh, really excellent points um all right uh, i think i'll just move on a bit to uh, a little bit more about your personal life i i find it very inspiring the amount you have achieved in such a small period of time i feel you know you've worked in the government and from government to an entrepreneurial experience is to in my head like two extremes uh, so tell me about how is that journey you know going from government to being an entrepreneur yeah you know i think one thing that i've learned in my life is never to say never and like i started the session saying it's important to kind of be positive and have an open mind and you know uh, be optimistic and i think that's probably how life has panned out so far is i think as long as one has a open mind because the world's constantly changing and I've, you know i've spoken about this earlier where you know obviously i come from a family i think like most of us where obviously education was a very important but i think if there's one thing that uh, really you know uh, has made me whatever little i am is it's that power of curiosity and wanting to know more and solve problems uh, and couple i think from you know from, from my father probably i got that a lot is you know how do you how do you be curious how do you find out how do you solve problems from my mother's side i think i got the uh, you know elements of emotional quotient how do you connect with people how do you network mm-hmm. so i think those ingredients were there but uh, truth be told i think i was you know till uh, till my college days i was in the path towards uh, you know a typical engineering degree probably would have you know joined one of the it firms uh, back in 2004 5 but couple of things happened i think so like i said you know i moved from indonesia did my high school came to singapore so i think one major trigger point was you know when i was doing my computer engineering in year 2 uh, nus launched my university nus launched a program called minor in technopreneurship so while my major degree is in uh, computer engineering my minor is in technopreneurship in which we were the guinea pig batch where singapore basically said you know what we're going to start teaching these geeks and techies the power of new business development and entrepreneurship and marketing much later i realized this was the government's push to drive entrepreneurship in singapore mm-hmm. uh, till i think late 90s singapore and when i say entrepreneurship i mean it in the startup tech world as we know it singapore has always been a trading hub there there have been businesses of all kinds but you know singapore kind of last 20 years has been pushing very heavily on the tech startup or the biotech startup ecosystem so i think that opened my eyes and wow as a like for all my life i believed that there was nothing else in life apart from engineering but the very fact that in college suddenly we could spend uh, half of my time in those modules of marketing that's the first time i you know got a taste of what marketing or business development or product development is mm-hmm. so that was in the back of my head wow maybe someday i could apply this mm-hmm. and then i think uh, you know when i uh, after i graduated i had uh, six or seven offers and one of them was the government and i was very inspired because again as a kid growing up i i was a, i'm a big fan of history so I, i i used to read a lot and i read about singapore and its history and how it went from third world to first world in uh, three decades uh, how lee kuan yew changed the country so when the government offer came that was very interesting and i said you know what this is very unusual it is not the highest paid offer that i had but i think this is unique so i went that path and i can't tell you how mind you know numbing or how mind boggling that opportunity was because the singapore government you know operates like a company it operates like a profit and loss department uh, clean transparent meritocratic and very efficient and it literally believes in pushing younger folks like us when we join into the deep end 
So six months down the road, my first assignment was, you know, take a delegation of 20 companies from Singapore to the US. So you're representing the country and a particular industry and you have to speak to ambassadors and uh, commercial attaches and so on and so forth. So the very fact that you're pushed into the deep, you have no choice either to sink or swim. And I believe most humans typically find a way out. So I think the government experience was definitely, a, uh, it allowed me to network. It allowed me to network at a very different level compared to what I would have if I had joined the IT firm. And one thing I learned during that journey was a senior of mine told me that whatever that you do in life, whichever organization that you join, always be in the heart of the organization. Don't join the limbs and the legs. And that has always stayed with me. And I spoke about this in my previous podcast that, you know, so when I was in the government, I wanted to be at the forefront. Then when I left the government and I said, I want to try private sector and I joined a brand consulting firm and then I uh, got my hands dirty in digital when I joined uh, you know, a well-known Indian digital company, Pinstorm, in Singapore mm-hmm. as head of sales. I always wanted to be client-facing. So I said, you know, I soon realized that any business, whether it's uh, selling uh, fashion or makeup or selling machinery, uh, ultimately is driven by a simple formula, profit equal to revenue minus cost. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what business you are in. And I wanted to be at the forefront, which means I wanted to either drive revenue or reduce cost. And I realized that I think my nature, my skill sets, my interests, they all pushed me towards client-facing roles or sales roles. Mm-hmm. So I think when, when Strategycom, the brand consulting firm and the Pinstorm role happened, I think that was a pivotal moment. I realized that, wow, after a public sector experience where I was doing public policy work, industry development work, and then when I could do sales, I think I've always prided uh, or looked up to salespeople because I realized that, you know, it takes a lot of courage to hear no's every day. It takes a lot of courage to wake up after hearing the no's the next day, knowing that you'll hear nine no's before you get one yes. Mm-hmm. And I think being, it's not just about the money. It's about the skill set of being at the forefront, talking to customers, educating them, understanding what they want, what they don't want. Mm-hmm. That whole process makes it very real. So when I went through that so-called baptism of fire through the public policy, networking, speaking, at the government level and the sales account management client facing opportunity uh, at the private sector level. I think that's when it gave me a confidence that, you know what, whatever that I learned in college during technopreneurship, I think it's time to, you know, bring whatever I learned in the books to real life. And of course, all of this is theory if opportunity would not come. And opportunity came when my classmate, Rachid Dayal, who I met in, uh, in NUS on day one, uh, you know, he's honestly, he's the true blue entrepreneur. He's one of my fewer friends who, uh, you know, after college, he did not even sit for placement. He started on as a freelancer. In fact, he's the original founder of Happy Marketer. And so he reached out to me saying, hey, dude, you know what? You're doing Pinstorm. Uh, you're, you know, you're doing well as a salesman in the digital world. Why don't we combine forces and do this together? So mm-hmm. it's a question of being open to a, being open to what life throws at you, making the most of it. Uh, you know, controlling variables that are in your control, learning new skills. And then when opportunity comes, hopefully one can take that. So when, you know, Rachid gave me that opportunity, it wasn't easy. It took me six months to convince myself and my family because, you know, there's always this question is, hey, you have a good corporate job. You're 28. The typical path would say do an MBA. Uh, But that was an interesting opportunity. So I said, hey, you know what? I can always get a corporate job or always do an MBA later. Let's, uh, Let's go about this. So that's honestly, a lot of this is accidental or serendipitous. But as they say, right, accident and serendipity also happens if you're open to opportunities. Um, So I think I am a big believer in what Steve Jobs said in that 2005 
commencement speech that he gave that you can eventually connect the dots. So, but when you're looking forward, just keep trying, follow your gut, keep doing what you think gives you joy and josh and that you know fun element. Eventually, somewhere the dots will connect. So, I suppose in my 15 years, and now in hindsight, like you know, in hindsight, everyone's a visionary. You can connect the dots. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, the message would be really to control variables in your control. Focus on your skill set. Don't chase money and titles in your early years. That's the biggest mistake, I think. That's one drawback of our culture is we focus a lot on paper degrees, on titles and money. I really, really think the first 10, 15 years should be about you, your skill sets, what brings you joy. Yeah, that's an awesome lesson. And um, I I got a similar message, you know, when I read uh, Catalyst. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the book. So it had such a great message. I think it has to be one of the best books I've read on, you know, career. And in in the first half, it's all about... Uh, when you're young, you know, don't go after the money or the degree, you know, you rather go after the learning and actually understand, like synthesize everything that you have learned and fail fast. How do you do this all? You know, like you are an angel investor in a bunch of other companies. You're handling such a big position here. And I know you love parenting your kids because I see it on LinkedIn all the time. So how do you really do this all? You know, having this entrepreneur lifestyle plus having a family and just managing it all. And from what I hear from you, you also... Uh, read up a lot on you know things outside of your industry and just general uh, stuff so you're updated about that too so how do you manage to do it all you know more than the how to be honest uh, the important part is the why as to why do I do this and again uh, this is always inside me but I think when I read a particular book by a gentleman called Simon Sinek uh, start with the why and I saw rather saw his TED video he helped me articulate that and I realized that in most cases, you know, whether as a marketer, when you're selling or marketing a product, what's important is to tell the customer why. Why should you do business with you? Why should you buy my soap? Right? Mm-hmm. And the same goes to your question. It is more the why. So I think, you know, I, I think the why for me is, uh, you know, if I look at life, look at people around me, I think there's always a solemn realization is that, you know, life is relatively short, you know, 70, 80, maybe 100 years, uh, but maybe only about 30, 40 years of, I guess, youth or productive life. Hopefully, our older days, thanks to technology, will be better. But so there is this, there is this core philosophy of, you know, that for those 30, 40 years that I'm here, what is it that I can do with and for others? Uh, and again, I like I told you, right, um, uh, is money not important? Absolutely, money is important because money gives you options in life. But I genuinely believe in the philosophy that if you start chasing that, it will move away. It will run away from you. I think it's important to keep in mind that find that ikigai, find what gives you passion and joy. Money will follow. It's a good uh, side effect. But absolutely, money is extremely, extremely important because without money, you don't have options. You can't do things. So I think it's that why of, you know, for me, what mattered is that, you know, when I started thinking about the why, it's that, uh, it's that juxtaposition of that ikigai kind of became, you know, these frameworks help you articulate these things which are already inside you. So what I realized that matters to me is, you know, it's my, I think I always talk about my, my health and my peace of mind. I think that's most important. It's my ambition to make an impact. It's again, going back to that point of always being in the heart of an organization or an industry. And can you make an impact? Can you make an impact to your company, your family, your 
community, your condo, or your country. I think that element of making an impact and leaving a legacy, I think, is the next big driver. And the third is, of course, the economics, the money, right? So when I think of these three together, I think honestly, when I analyze myself, I think it's that juxtaposition of these three things that drives me to do whatever I do. And I must say, I'm not a very structured, planned person. So. Unlike a lot of my colleagues, unlike Rachit, my colleague, who's very structured, very calendar-driven, mine is very gut-feeling, passion, Joe-driven. But I think you know, if that why is internally clear, you, I would like to believe that you end up acting in your best interest. Mm-hmm. So I think most important is to get that why clear as to why am I doing what am I doing, and you know, or why am I not doing what I should be doing. Uh, if you have that clear, I think productivity, efficiency, you know, they all fall into place because to be honest, and I'm really grateful and fortunate that for the last 10 odd years, I'm, I don't really feel that I've worked well because, you know, I don't think of clocking my eight hours or 10 hours. It doesn't matter because anyway, we're in a flexible work hours. For example, tomorrow I might take a break and go with my family to the zoo, uh, but it doesn't matter. I'll come back and, you know, figure out. So I think work should not feel like work. Uh, so again, many people have different philosophies on this. They like to draw boundaries between work and home especially in today's environment. But I don't know. I've not been that person. To me, it's very fluid. To me, I'm one person. Whether I'm a happy marketer or working at Densu or I'm with my child, I, for me, life is very fluid and intermingled. So one minute I could be playing Django with him, Jenga with him or one minute I could be you know, getting back to a Zoom call or a webinar. Uh, but I think the underlying element is you know, be it angel investing, be it running a company, be it advising companies, be it spending time with family or doing some charitable work, perhaps it stems from that impact, the monetary element and peace of mind and health. I think over time, again, if I, if I was a 23 year old, I don't think I would have had that clarity, but today when I look back and when I read these frameworks, I think uh, they kind of helped me articulate this. Yeah. Great message. Yeah. I think once you know your why you also figure out your how, you know, because it seems that much more important. So it's, it's, Best you start with the why. Great message. I think with that message, I will end this podcast. Uh, it was amazing having this conversation with you and having this time to pick uh, pick your brain and learn so many new things. I'm so glad I got this opportunity. No, and thank you so much. Like I said, you know, every such conversation really helps one uh, find and learn more things about oneself, but also you know through you. For example, it's really great to know that you two attended Nuts Talk that uh, it's good you mentioned about Catalyst. I'm, I've, it's in my bookshelf, but uh, again, uh, it's criminal of me not to read it yet. So I will definitely go and read it. So it's, you know, it's, it's really, hopefully as the podcast goes out and hopefully we have more engagements and questions, it's, to me, this is what really drives me again is, you know, this kind of fuels me at the end, you know, it's 10.40 right now, but it's that, that, oh, what did I learn something? You know, did I meet someone new? Did I learn something? So yeah, hopefully this podcast has been useful. Thank you once again for the opportunity and yeah, wish you all the best. Hope you you get many more interesting guests who can educate and entertain us. Thank you. Thank you so much.